everybody, Daniel Ramsey here with My Outdesk. I'm super excited. Today's podcast guest is Michael Franzese. He is a former mob boss. And in our conversation today, we talk about how the mob and business is very similar. We go over leadership principles and we hear about his high and his low in business. And it's an amazing conversation because Personally, it was fascinating hearing exactly how the mob economic model worked, how they recruited people, what their values and culture was like. This is a fun conversation and it's a first for my Outdesk and me and it was an awesome pleasure to meet Michael and hear his story. I got uh, blindsided by Life Magazine. They, uh, I was in prison, I had taken a plea and the warden called me and said, there's a uh, Life Magazine's doing a big story on you. I think 20 years earlier, they had done a big story on my dad, which was the biggest story ever in Life Magazine, 29 pages. He, he was on trial for murder and it was all about the murder trial, but photos and 29 pages, huge story. So they said they're doing kind of an anniversary edition on you. My frame of mind, I'm trying to make peace with the government. I'm trying to, you know, just, get my life straight so when I get out of here, yeah. things are okay. Yeah. So I sit down with the reporter and I tell him, you know, he says, what are you doing out in California? I said, well, I married a California girl. And what about your mob times? And I said, what are you talking about? There's no mob. You know, I told him standard mob stuff. I said, I'm leaving and, you know, coming out here to enjoy my life and all that when I get out of jail. About three weeks later, the warden calls me and he says, Francis, do you have a death wish? Just like that. I said, what are you talking about? And he shows me the article, right? It's double page, Life Magazine, big picture of me, and across the top, quitting the mafia. And I'm in jail with like 10 of the mob guys, right? From, wow. And he had me doing everything but testifying against guys in New York. I mean, he didn't go that far, but he was saying the next step when somebody does this, they go into witness protection. And he had me as a witness, major witness. So the warden says, I got to lock you down. I said, yeah, lock me down. I said, there's, you know. This is I'm, all lies. Yeah, I'm making light of the art. He says, yeah, but there's guys out there. He set me up because that afternoon, the FBI came into the prison right, right there while the warden had me. And they said, Francis, we got word from our informants. It's all over the street. You're a dead man. And uh, cooperate with us. We'll put you in a program. So now I'm thinking, was this whole thing a setup? Set up. You know, to get me to cooperate? And I said, I don't know what you guys are talking about. So I kind of chased them away. But from that point on, my life was miserable. I mean, the feds put me on diesel therapy, shipped me all over the country. Then they locked me down and they just made it very, very difficult for me trying to get me to cooperate, you know, which I wouldn't. So I spent like five years of, of very tough time because of that. And, uh, and that was the start of all of it. And then, you know, they had, then uh, I was sending messages to my father, who was also in prison. I said, Dad, don't believe any of this. Not happening. Don't believe it. But, you know, everybody that cooperates always say they're not cooperating until you see them on the witness stand, right? Right. So now the feds went even a step further. They put my name on the witness list of major trials going up with my guys in New York. So I'm out on parole, very bad time for me for 13 months. And meanwhile, these trials are coming up and I don't show up. One trial, two trials, I don't show up. And then the feds bring me in to uh, testify against a guy who was the boss of Jersey, a guy by the name of John Riggy, a good friend of mine. And he and I had a deal, every window that came into Manhattan uh, they had to pay us a tax on. And so it was a Jersey family and me that were put this together. And they were going to put me on a stand and testify because a guy that was around me became an informant and told them that me and Riggy were partners. So he said, we're going to put you on a stand. And if you lie, we're going to indict you for perjury. I said, put me on a stand. I said, but your witness is a liar. I says, and I'm going to expose him because I know everything about him. So put me on a stand. I'm ready. Yeah. Well, they changed their mind. They sent me back to California because they had picked me up at six in the morning. And uh, five days later, I was violated on my parole. They made up some BS nonsense that I didn't file my income taxes and they violated me and I did another three years in prison. So today I wanted to talk mostly about how the mob is a business and how you kind of lived in that space. And I'm interested mostly to see if we can help people. Like the idea would be you've learned you know, how to grow revenue, you've learned how to lead people, you've learned how to navigate legal stuff. I mean, in business, we have to navigate lawsuits and all kinds of craziness. Um, so I'm curious um, if you could start with just like 
how the business works of the mob. Let me make something clear. The mafia, Cosa Nostra in this country, it's not a business. It's a way of life. It's a whole different mentality. It's a whole subculture from everything else that exists. It's a way of life. Now, we do business as part of that way of life, and it, it's, it goes along with our mindset, you know? It's very Machiavellian in a way that, you know, uh, Machiavelli taught that you can do anything to maintain control power. and power. Yeah. But to the outside world, you always have to appear to be upright and honest and have integrity. And a lot of guys dealt that way. So, um, but it, it's a business like anything else. Just, you know, look, we dealt with extortion. I mean, that's the word for it, meaning that, you know, if we went in and we wanted to take control of your business, we didn't have a rule like everybody else. Like, you know, we just said, hey, we're going to control your business or you're not going to have a business. It's very simple, you know. Um, so we had our ways of doing things, but once we were in that business, we ran it like a business. Yeah. You know, the same way anybody else would. Business is business, whether you're doing it on the street or you're doing it in the boardroom. You still have to follow the same principles. What, what were some of the, the, the ways that the lifestyle and the business commingled? Like, I'm curious, how did you recruit people into the lifestyle and therefore into the business? And how did you identify, like, hey, I think this guy's an earner and he should be in our world. Like, cause I'm, I'm constantly, you know, interviewing leaders and managers for my business. And I'm just kind of curious how you guys recruited and how did you train somebody? Like there's like, I mean, I, I just think that's fascinating. Well, let, let's put it this way. You, you could separate uh, mobsters into two categories. They're either um, racketeers, which are the guys that earn the money. Yep. Or they're gangsters which are the guys that do the grunt work on the street. Both important, but no organization can exist without money, including the mob. In the Colombo family, back during my era, we had 115 made guys, guys that actually took the oath. Yep. Now, out of that 115, 20 of us were earners. The other 95 were trying to make a living. Who's got a little numbers racket, who's maybe trying to put a, you know, a gambling game together, who's got a no-show job with the union. And most of the time, if there was any hard work to be done, when I say work, unfortunately, I don't want to be offensive, but that can mean to hurt somebody. You didn't want to jeopardize the guys that were bringing the money in. Because the way we saw it, the way I saw it anyway, a gangster didn't have the ability to be a racketeer. If he was a gangster, he couldn't earn, that was it. But a racketeer could do both. He could be a good earner and also do the heavy work. And as a racketeer, you have to be able to do both because you're going to be called upon to do dirty work no matter what. You may not be the guy all the time, but you're going to, your, your turn is going to come up. It's kind of like in business, you know, when you have a leader who can lead a process, but also can do a process. Is that, is that a similarity? Same way, yes. Okay. Because, you know, the racketeers, if, like I was elevated to the position of capo regime or capo. And if you're a capo you, and you're telling one of your guys you have to do this, they need to know that you're capable of doing it too. Well, they're not going to hold you in high regard. So you got to get in the trenches with them at least once, twice, three times, whatever it takes, because they have to have faith in you or they have to know that, hey, he's not telling me to do anything that he can't do. Right. That's important. But, you know, again, it was separated into those. Now, now once you became, once you were a racketeer, it was your ability, you know, to earn. I was fortunate. I knew how to use the life to benefit me in business. And if you have that mindset and that know-how, you could be very, very successful because we don't play by the same rules. Right. You know, we make our own rules up and we have the aura of the mob behind us. So that in itself puts people on notice that, hey, I better do this or there could be a problem. And, uh, and it worked for me. I was wondering, like, let's, let's go into like the structure. Um, if I was talking to a business owner, I'd be like, hey, what's your org chart? but I'm, I'm talking to a former mobster. So the 115 made guys, I understand there's earners and then just gangsters. Talk through the leadership and talk through if you use just the general public inside your organization and how that relationship worked. Well, the structure of the mob, I know people get it. They think we have lieutenants and sergeants and all that, none of that. You have a boss, he's the guy at the top. You have his underboss, which is handpicked by him, second in command. You have a consigliere, 
which is kind of like the advisor position. You know, Robert Duvall played that role in The Godfather and did a great job, yeah. but it was fictional in The Godfather. Because in order to take that role, you have to be a made guy, and you can't be a made guy unless your father's Italian. So that was not a, a real role in The Godfather. But the consigliere's real purpose, he's supposed to be the liaison between the men and the boss. Because if you're a soldier, you can't go directly to the boss. You have to go through your capo, and then he, he uh, represents you to the boss if you have a problem. But if you've got a problem with everybody, you're supposed to go to the consigliere, and he, in turn, will work it out for you. The problem with that is the consigliere is handpicked by the boss. And if you go to the consigliere to the complaint about the boss, <laughs> you're going to be in trouble. So you don't do that. Yeah. So the consigliere is just, it's just a, a neutral party, position. like HR. And it's a, supposed to be. Yeah, like you, anybody can go to him and he'll solve problems. Correct. For the family where it might not get back to the boss. Correct. That's interesting. But it's, it's it, you're in a tough, you, there's so much, what's the word, intrigue in that life. You've got to be very careful who you talk to, what you say, uh, because it can come back to hurt you. But, and then you have couple regimes captains, yep. which are handpicked by the boss. He assigns you that position. And then you have soldiers under him. The soldiers are made guys, guys that actually took the oath. And then we have a lot of associates, but associates are not made guys. They don't have that privilege and that, you know, respect, uh, but they work with the families. Like I had 300 associates under me because when I got involved in the gas business, I had a huge crew with the Russian mob and everything else. So they were my associates. Were our associates the equivalent in business to like employees? Like, yeah. Okay, so you had 300 employees in your organization. Employees, one of them could have been a business owner that I was partners with, right. you know, but he was an associate of mine, you know, and to, to be an associate means you're protected. Nobody in one of the other families or in your own family can bother you because I'm your, he's, he's with me. Yeah. It's the expression. He's with me. He's with me. Right. I yeah. I am. Um, and, and we were just recording video and I have a sales close that is, I'm your guy. Like, mm -hmm. like I tell people, Hey, I'm, I'm your guy. And, uh, I love that he's with me. I think that that goes together. You know? So he's protected. Nobody can touch him or bother him or, you know, anything else. That's fun. Um, in your organization, can you just walk me through the economics of it? You had 300 associates. How many, how many made guys were in your part of this organization? We had 115 made guys. Yep. Um, and when I became a captain, I had uh, about 17 soldiers under me. Yep. And then I had, like I said, a lot of associates because I was out there quite a bit. And are the made guys like middle-level managers? Is that like what you would call them? Well, no. A made guy, once you take the oath, you're made. And you come in as a soldier. Yeah. That's your rank. You know, and allegedly in that life, everybody is equal. The soldier is equal to the boss. You're not, he's not better than you. Mm -hmm. He just has authority over you. Do you understand? But if, if he were to make a mistake, for instance... You're never, ever, ever allowed to raise your hand to another made guy, no matter who you are. The boss can't do it to a soldier. A soldier can't do it to a boss. If a boss were to hit a made guy, a soldier, he could be held responsible. I mean, that could be, that could be very serious consequences for him. That happens all the time, though. No, it doesn't. Not at all. No, no. Made guys don't get hit from one another. Mm -hmm. And if a guy on the street hits a made guy, he's in trouble. Even, even if he was 100% right, he's in trouble. He can't do that. So, um, you know, in theory, we're all equal. In practice, not that way. But in theory, we're all equal. So, um, but, you know, the structure is, look, Mafia Cosa Nostra in this country survived and prospered for over 100 years on, under some very tough conditions. The reason for that is because the structure, the discipline, the authority was very, very well organized in that regard. And that's why it lasted. That's why a lot of these other criminal groups don't last because Define they're all over that, the place. Define that though. Define that. Because I think that's the transferable lesson for people. Authority, power, respect, like culture. Like how, how would you describe your organization and why it lasted and prospered and did well versus the average? There's a, have you ever seen the Gotti movie with Armand DeSante? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Brilliant film, probably the best, the most accurate, realistic mob movie ever made. Mm -hmm. Armand Asante was brilliant, uh, Anthony Quinn brilliant. There's a scene in there 
don't know if you remember, when they're in the bar, and Anthony Quinn, who was Neil Delacroix, somebody I knew pretty well, um, was chastising um, John Gotti, Armand DeSante, because he broke the rules. He killed another mob guy. Right. And Anthony Quinn brilliantly, you know, looks at him and he chastises him and he says, we have to play by the rules. He said, I fought for your life last night and I won. But if Carlo, the boss, would have come, told me that you had to go, I would have come here with these two zips and you would go because you must play by the rules. And that's what kept that thing going because we, we played by the rules. And you knew that if you broke the rules, there were serious consequences. It could be your best friend. If he breaks the rules, He's done. He's done. Look, one of the horrors of that life, uh, Daniel, is, you know, you make a mistake. Your best friend walks you into a room. You don't walk out again. Yeah. That's it. And, um, you know, it, it was very definite. You just could not break the rules. It's interesting because we, we attempt as business owners to recruit to our culture. And I imagine in the mob where the stakes are so much higher, um, one of the things I always say, business, you know, it's not life or death. We're just talking about dollars and cents. It's, mm -hmm. you know, nobody's going to die here. That's not the case for the mob. So right. I'm curious, how did you guys decide who was a fit to your culture, you know, and played by the rules and knew, like, what was that process? And what was the process that you went through? A couple of things. There's a lot of nepotism in that life. Yep. A lot of, like me, my father proposed me for membership. Uh, Joe Colombo proposed his two sons, Persigo, his sons. A lot of nepotism because you figure you can trust them. Yeah. You know where they came from. You know, they're not going to break the oath. They understand the life. Exactly. They understand the life. But there are also those guys on the street like uh, Sammy Gravano, who grew up on the street, who was around a lot of guys, who proved himself being a criminal. Yeah. You know, proved himself. So somebody in that life takes him under their wing and says, this guy has what it takes to be one of us, and therefore I'm gonna propose him into the life. But he's been tested, he's been seen, he's been shown. You know, interesting uh, dynamic. When I got made in 1975, there was a saying that the books had been closed yeah. since the 50s. They weren't bringing new guys in. The only way they can bring, and this was among all five families, I think it was countrywide, um, the only way they can make a new guy is if somebody died in the family and you had to replace them so that we maintain the ranks. So there were guys, when I became a recruit in the early 70s, there were guys waiting 20 years, 20 years to become members. You know, if I didn't give somebody a job after a six-month trial or make them a normalized employee, they'd be like, I'm out of here, right? Mm -hmm. But these guys were willing to wait 20 years. How did you guys craft that? Is it money? Is it prestige? Or what, what caused people to want to wait 20 years to be a made guy? It's a very desirable lifestyle from the outside looking in. You know, I speak to young kids all the time, yeah. gangbangers going to juvenile halls. And I give them my, my thing and they'll look at me and I'm, you know, telling them how it's a bad life, the gang life, the street life. Oh, come on, Mike. You know, I saw the movie Goodfellas. You guys had all the cars. You had the women. You had the money. You had the power. You had the respect. I said, yes, we did. I said, but did you turn off half the movie? You didn't watch the end of the movie? Yeah. Who died? Who got killed? Who went to prison? Who lost everything? They don't see that. And guys on the street, the same thing. They see us walking around with a lot of power and prestige and money. And it's true, we have it. But they don't look at the end result because everybody, that's not gonna happen to me. Mm -hmm. And most of these guys, they know if they gotta do a couple of years in prison, like I always knew I was gonna do some time. Didn't scare me, I didn't wanna do it, didn't scare me. But you knew. You knew it's part of the game. Yeah, yeah you knew it's part of the game. So you're prepared for it. I watched my father go in and out of jail for years mm -hmm. and then finally get that main sentence. But so it doesn't scare you, you know? And the, the aphrodisiac of money and power is just too strong. Wow. So walk us through the economics. I know you had one of the most profitable, you know, gigs, or I, I don't even know what you would call it, but you- Scam. Scam, yeah, you had the most profitable scam since Al Capone, I read that yeah. about you. Um, so would you say you were the second highest earner in the mob ever, or what would you say? You know, that's what I think Vanity Fair said that about me, that, you know, yeah. well, look, my indictment was like $2 billion they, uh, they claim I, we defrauded the government out of. 
a little bit low, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> two Only Bs. Kidding. That wasn't big yeah. enough. Only kidding. But I mean, it was a lot of money. You know, we, in our era, I don't think anybody was making that kind of money. Yeah. And I'll tell you how. I'll tell you the formula I used. Yeah. If like this whole gas scam was my deal, I brought it to my family. They didn't need to contribute anything. I didn't need money from them. I didn't need anything. I'll tell you how it when I, when I finally realized what I had. I went to my boss, Carmine Persigo at the time, and I, they, we called him Junior. <clears throat> and I said, and I was a soldier, I wasn't even a captain. I said, Junior, I bypassed my captain. I had to come and sit with you. He said, what's up? He respected me, so it was okay. I said, look, I came across a deal. I'm gonna show you more money than you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. And he immediately looked at me, he says, drugs? I said, you know, I, don't, I hate anything to do with drugs. We weren't allowed to get involved. I said, not drugs. He said, what is it? I said, it's gas. He said, gas? I said, yes. I said, we're going to be defrauding the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. I said, but here's the deal. When this spreads around, because some of the other Russian guys were doing it a little bit, but they hadn't figured out the exact formula. Um, I said, when this word spreads around, everybody's going to want a piece of it, and we're going to blow it. Going to blow it. We've got to keep this within ourselves. He says, well, what do you mean? I said, I'll tell you what, if I have a sit down with somebody, if somebody tries to move in, I got to win. I got to win every argument. I said, I'm going to be right. I don't argue unless I'm right. I said, so you got to support me. Don't play any politics. Support me and I'll show you more money than you ever saw in your life. So he looked at me. I'll never forget, Junior. He goes, show me. Within a couple of months, I was bringing him $2 million a week. That buys a lot of loyalty. I never lost an argument. Never. Not with Gotti, not with anybody that tried to get in, because that's what happens there. Whenever, when a good thing starts to move, everybody wants a piece, you know, and they want to... All of the five families want a piece. Yes, yes. So, you know, whoever gets wind of it and understands it, and I wasn't the most uh, quiet guy around in that I, you know, I had a jet plane, I had a helicopter, I had, you know, a house in Florida, a house in... Uh, California, house in New York. I had boats in the backyard, so people knew I was making a lot of money, and we, we had a wealthy crew. Yeah. So word just spreads around, and then people want to get involved, and you got to keep them out because when too many people get involved in anything, it breaks. It breaks. Yeah. What was the economics? So, let's say you're bringing your boss <coughs> eight million bucks a month. Yeah. So my formula was this: if this was totally my deal. And I didn't need you for anything. I didn't need money from you. You weren't my partner. I gave him 25% of whatever I earned. That was my formula. That was it. To the boss. Yep. Now, the reason he made me a captain at the time, because understand the, 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 the way the uh, chart flows. If I was a soldier, I had to first give to my captain, and then my captain would take a piece and then give the rest to the boss. But if I'm a captain, I go directly to the boss. Right. So there's no middleman. So he immediately made me a captain. <laughs> that was it. it, was one of the reasons for sure. So um, I was dealing directly with the boss on this. So, um, you know, and, and I'll tell you another interesting thing. With my crew, I set them all down, you know, guys that had aspirations of maybe being involved in the life. And I said, all right, let me tell you the deal here. And I was about maybe 12 of the guys at the time. I said, if you want to become a made member of this life, this is not the crew for you. And they said, what do you mean? They said, I'm not going to propose anybody. I'm not going to sponsor anybody. I said, this is not the crew. So if you want to be a made guy, you got to go elsewhere. Mm. Now, if you want to make money, this is the place to be because I'm going to make you all wealthy. Mm. I said, so make your choice. The reason I did that is because when you propose a guy and make a guy, you lose him. Yeah. He's his own guy at that point. So it's like I'm setting him up to leave me. So why am I going to make this guy wealthy and then lose him? We call it in business, uh, turnover is the enemy of scale. Mm -hmm. You have turnover inside your crew. You got to bring a new guy in. You got to train him. It takes time. Exactly. It's a deflection from the team. And so you want to do everything you can to keep your trained best people on the team exactly. producing. That's interesting. So the other thing I did too is, is because of that, in case anybody had aspirations of leaving, I never let them know the inside of the operation. There was only two of us that understood that, me and my partner. And I knew my partner would never 
never want to be a, a made guy. Your partner was, would he be the equivalent to like a COO? He handled the day to day and like all the details. Yes. He was a detail guy. He brought the, he actually brought the scam to me. He came to me, he had a small gasoline operation out in Suffolk County, and it was two mob guys from another family extorting him, shaking him down for money. So he came to me for help. Initially, I chased him. I said, you know, you got two guys already involved with you, I don't mess with other people's business. He kept coming back, kept coming back, kept coming back. He was an Italian guy. By the way, six foot five, 450 pounds. Huge guy, I'll show you a picture, you'll laugh. So, um, he sits me down, he says, I'm pleading with you to listen to me. He said, I have a deal. We can, we can beat the government out of money. So now I hated the government at that point. So that's when he got my attention. I said, explain it to me. He didn't have the right value proposition all the times before. Exactly. But he figured out exactly what he needed from you. Yeah. So what he was trying to do initially is not share this information with me, just get me to help him. And maybe, how much can I pay you? I said, you can't pay me anything. Take a walk, right? I don't want to be bothered. But now he had to share his idea with me. And um, I hated the government. I said, okay. I said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a shot. So I got rid of the other two guys. I, I made them go away. I didn't get rid of them. Did you pay him? The two mob guys? Yeah. No, I just... Said, I hey, him. this is my guy. Leave him alone. Yeah, I had a whole sit down with their boss over this, but I ended up winning. So... Um, so I said, I'm going to give you a shot. So I said, I want to form a new company. I don't know if you owe taxes or anything else, but I don't want to be involved in that. I'm going to form a new company. Yep. I said, well, get some offices and let me see what you can do. So I got this guy, Vinny Aspermonte was around me. He was my butcher. He's a yeah. big guy, tough guy, big scar across the top of his head. You looked at him, you got nervous, right? So I said, Vinny, I'm going to put you with Larry. I said, for the next two, three weeks, stay with him. Let's see what he's really got. I don't know this guy that well. Okay. So about three weeks later, he knocks on my door on Saturday morning. He used to bring me meat, right? Yeah, yeah. And he's got a box on his shoulder. And uh, I open the door. I says, what are we having, a party? What are we, it's all this meat, you know? He said, hey, chief, it ain't meat. Come in the kitchen. So I go in the kitchen with him. He puts the box down. I'll never forget. He opens it up. I immediately smelled gasoline, right? And he said, this is the first week and a half take in the gas business. It was $320,000. Got my attention. We grew that from three twenty dollars to between eight and $10 million a week because I had over 350 gas stations we either owned or operated by lease. We were selling to all the majors, Shell, Mobile, because we undercut everybody. Everybody that owned the station wanted to buy from us. And then, uh, and then when we had to become licensed uh, wholesalers in order to collect the tax, I had 18 licenses that I was able to get, and I had political connections to help me. I was paying them. Yeah. just couldn't get the license. It was difficult. And so we grew that operation into, we were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month, taking down 20, 30, 40 cents a gallon, depending upon the deals that we made. Wow. And then I brought the Russian mobs in. They had a... Uh, uh, they had a, uh, an unbranded uh, independent gas station called Gas Stop. And I met up with them, and they were trying to do what we could do, but they couldn't get the licenses. So I said, I'm going to bring into my fold every, every gallon of gas that you purchase and sell, you bring it through my company, and we'll cut it up. <laughs> and the deal I make with them, I had three Russian guys. They were great partners, by the way, terrific partners. I made a ton of money with them. And so when I first sit down with them, this will give you a little insight into how we operated. I said, here's the cut, 75% me, 25% you. So they went and they huddled up together. I'll never forget, Mike Markowitz looks at me and says, Mr. Michael, that's not fair. I said, why 75%? We're doing all the work. He says, we're writing it on your license. I said, very simple. I says, we're all on the street and you're going to steal from me a little bit. I said, so this way I won't be that mad when I know I'm getting a lion's share. I said, but don't let me catch you anyway. And so they, I'll never forget, Daniel, they went and huddled and they said, you got a deal. And they shook, my, they shook my head, right? But it was the best relationship on the street that I ever had. They were terrific partners. That's great. What's interesting, um, when we form a partnership, and I'm in a, a couple right now, um, you have an operating agreement, you have like roles and responsibilities, you have milestones and goals. like. 
how did you form partnerships? Were they as organized or if a guy just misbehaved you? No, you know, look, to me, it's, you know, you catch full, more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. I, I, I didn't, it was a last resort. Unless somebody was overtly outright trying to beat you. Um, I always tried to make a deal and work it out. Yeah, always, always. Because, look, even on the street, especially a guy like me who had law enforcement investigations constantly, you know, anytime somebody runs to the law, you got a problem. So you always tried not to make that happen. And if you did have to deal with somebody that way, if somebody was just so overt and just so out of control, well, then, then you know, you had to do it, you know, and, and we did it. We didn't hesitate when it came to that. So that was another kind of lightning rod that we held over people, and they knew that. You know, I had a, a deal um, in Michael Jackson's 1984 Victory Tour. My guy, a guy was one of my associates, originally my dad's, then I, I took him over. Uh, he was the biggest um, agent for black entertainment at that time. He had yeah. everybody, yeah. from Dionne Warwick to Marvin Gaye to everybody. Well, he got involved in a Michael Jackson tour through Joe Jackson, Michael's father. Yeah. And we were going to have that tour. Turns out Michael gets mad at his father, didn't like his father, and anything his father brought in, he threw out. So he hired somebody else to do the tour. So my guy finds out about it and he says to me, Mike, we're going to lose the tour. I said, well, who's the guy? So he gives me the manager's name. I fly out to uh, uh, California and I meet with him. Yeah. And I said, look, you know, my guy had the tour beforehand. I said, you got to work something out. He said, well, Michael doesn't want it. I said, well, I want it, just like that. And uh, I said, the problem you have is if, if my guy isn't involved, there ain't going to be a tour. Mm -hmm. So what are you knocking yourself out for? I said, just work it out. Yeah. yeah. I said, my guy's very capable. You know who he is. Work it out between you. And that's all I had to say. I said, they're not going to be a tour. So why do you want to blow it? That was enough. Yeah. And they worked it out. He got the lion's share, but I told my guy, listen, settle for what you got. We're not going to have a whole thing with Michael Jackson. Just settle it quietly. Settle. Yeah. And we did, and we got a piece of the tour at that time. So walking in the room, I didn't have to threaten a guy. I, mean, I just said, there's not going to be a tour, you know? So why do that? You know, it, it's, it's the way you handled yourself back then was, was very important. I think most entrepreneurs, they, they've got a lot going on in their world. You know, they got to worry about family, the business, their employees, taking care of their, themselves, working out, you know, like all the things, right? But I imagine the mob creates like, an extra layer of pressure. So I'm, I'm curious, how did you keep your mind right? How did you manage your own personal stress in your organization so you could show up for your guys and be strong and be a great leader? And like, how, how did you do all that? You know, Daniel, I, I, I don't, it's tough for me to answer because a couple of years ago, I'll never forget, I had something that, you know, when your beard starts to disappear a little bit in spots, I forget what they call it. But I went to the doctor, and it was a cosmetic thing, and he looked at me, he said, you know, this is caused by stress. Do you have a lot of stress? And I said, Doc, I don't know what stress is. I've lived a certain way my whole life. I said, you know, I don't want to tell him I got, you know, FBI, law enforcement, prison. I said, I, I don't know. I said, this is, life is normal for me in that way. His was my motto in business. This is what made me successful. Everybody says, Michael, you were such a brilliant businessman. You came up with all these scams. I said, that's not true. I am not a brilliant businessman. There are things in business I don't want to do. I don't like it, and I won't even touch it. Right. I said, but I had one talent. I said, and that talent was, and this goes along with my saying, do what you do best and delegate the rest. Now, what I did best at that time was I was able to recognize a good deal. I understood the marketplace. I understood things that were going on. I was able to recognize it because in that life, you get a deal a day. Everybody's coming to you for something. For me, it became so crazy that I had a, I bought a, a club, a restaurant club, and I called it Mondays and I said, Monday night, I'm going to be here. You want to propose something to me? You come here between six and nine o'clock and we'll discuss it. I had a line of people who would come in just to tell me, and 99% of them you throw out. It's not important. But that one may be the one, right? So my talent was finding the right people to do the job and then motivating them to do the job right. And that was it. 
I had two, I, I had a Mazda dealership. My first thing, I was a kid, I was 20 years old. You couldn't give away a Mazda. The Wankel engines were exploding, you couldn't give it away. I had a guy that was dying, he was drowning in it. I said, let me take your place. He said, you know, I'm stuck in here. I said, well, you're stuck, you, you don't know what you're doing. I was 20 years old, I said, let me take it. I gave him 25 grand, I, I had already been on trial. Yeah. I, I didn't have two cents. I got 25 grand a little bit at a time. I gave it to him and he was out, right? Well, I took that place and I turned it around into the biggest Mazda dealership in the whole tri-state area. How did I do that? Well, the service department at that time, were, the, the, the engines were coming in because they were exploding left and right, left and right. But it took five hours to rebuild an engine because they were pancakes. It was the seals that broke between them. So I went to Mazda at that time. I was lucky they gave me the franchise because I was a kid. Yeah. But uh, um, I said, listen, I'm going to open my shop 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm going to buy two tow trucks anywhere that you have an engine down. I don't care where it is. I don't care if I have to go to Florida. I'll go pick it up, put it in my shop. My service department was humming 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It cost us $200 to rebuild the engine. The factory gave us $1,300 at the time. So we were boom, the service department's booming, 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 right? Then I made a used car lot out of it. And we were selling used cars like crazy because back at that time, you couldn't uh, get financing to sell a used car. You couldn't get bank loans right. unless you had a new car shingle. So now I'm a Mazda dealer. So now I'm selling used cars like crazy, buying them at the auction. And then all of a sudden they come out with the GLC, the, four, the piston engine, and Mazda starts going crazy, right? Starts picking up. So... But I had a great service manager. He was terrific. My parts manager, terrific. Because I don't know how to do that stuff, right? right? And then my sales guy, who I'm still in touch with now, you know, we're still friends. He, he says, I made more money with you than I ever made, you know, and he was my uh, sales guy. So, and I just motivated them. I, and that's what I do. That's what I do. It's even today, you know, I mean, I'm into, I'm into wine. I got a brilliant young man, Sam, that's, that's handling everything. And hopefully I can build a brand to where the wine, you know, matches the brand and hey, we take off. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing, yeah. But the nuts and bolts of everything he's doing. I advise him, you know, if he asks me something, but, but he's got it down pat. How do you um, motivate people? And I think we're moving into the leadership part of the conversation. I'd like to understand, like, I can see you, you see models really well. I mean, the fact that the service and I, I see you, you saw a problem with a company and you saw an opportunity and then you built a model and then you hired the right people. So you've done a lot of the things that we have to do in business, right? I mean, it's just business. It's not, there's no difference in it. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what, are, what were some of your leadership lessons? Like what are the things that you've, you'd pass on to your kids or you'd tell a new business owner to help them become successful? Well, you know, I've said this many times, a leader, a boss is not necessarily a leader. A boss is a boss and a supervisor. A leader to me is only a leader when people willingly want to follow him. Yeah. And when you're a leader, you have to inspire people to believe in you. And if they're going for a certain goal, they have to believe that you believe that goal is attainable and you're gonna be in the trenches with them to get there. I also believe a leader, people have to understand that you're capable of doing what you're asking them to do. Yeah. You know, especially like in the military, it's so important. Yeah. You know, you wanna follow a guy that you know that's gonna be in the trenches with you. So I think, you know, I've been fortunate, I have that quality. Um, listen, I've, I've failed in my life, but failure never stopped me from anything, never. I mean, to me, it's a learning experience. You know, okay, I misfired on this. I made a mistake here. How do I correct it and move forward? Well, and there's sometimes when you just say, you know what, this was the wrong thing. Yeah. And you move on. Yeah. You know, but a lot of people get discouraged by failure. And I counsel them all the time. I said, hey, there's always another way or a second way. Or maybe just, you know, people come to me all the time. I want to own a business. I want to do this. I want to do that. I said, that's not for you. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? Well, you're a worker. You're a good worker. There's nothing wrong with that. You have a talent and ability to do what you're doing. You're not a business owner. Stay in your lane. Yeah. And you, you have to let them understand that in a way that makes them feel good about what they're doing. Not that you're putting them down, mm -hmm. but hey, you're great at this. This is what you should be doing. What do you want the headache of being in business for? 
Don't you get what you're going to put on your shoulders when you're doing so well now? You can rise into where you are. And I've, I've told people that many times, and, and it's the truth. How do you identify the difference between a worker and a leader? You can see it. You know, you just, after a conversation, you, you can just see it, you know? Um, I mean, I can't, I can't give you anything definite that I can put my finger on, but just in conversation and talk, you know, you could see it. Who are some of the people in your leadership, you know, because you, you're here today, but you were a new leader once, right? So back when you were a new leader, new to business, new to the mob, who are some of the people that you admired or you looked up to or when you had a problem you went to to help you figure out what you should do? You know, a couple of things. The only, the only business book leadership book that I ever re read, which until today inspired me, was Lee Iacocca when he wrote, yeah. uh, I, forget the, I forget the title of the book, but I was very much inspired by uh, that book. And that was 100 years ago that I read it. But you know, on the street, the guys that inspired me, I was very inspired by my dad. My dad was not a good businessman, yeah. but he had charisma. He had distinct leadership qualities. He was very wise in the things that he told me, and he inspired me. Um, a lot of the things that I do were traits that my father passed on to me, even though he was not a good businessman. My father wouldn't invest two cents in anything. And I used to say, Dad, sometimes you got to put money in. No, 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 we don't do that. We, it's other people's money. I said, you can't do that all the time. You know, he would get mad at me when I would invest in something. Why are you doing that? Somebody, I said, Dad, relax. I got another control. Uh -huh. I, yeah, I had, I, had a, I had to always school him in that way. And then when the result was good, he said, okay, it worked out. But you could have did it this way. I said, all right, Dad. But, um, but he inspired me. Uh, believe it or not, Joe Colombo. Yeah. yeah, I was young when I, when I uh, watched Joey carry himself and I watched how what I did is I watched how people carry themselves and I watched how other people reacted to that and you try to pick up on those qualities those strong points yeah. and I saw that in my father I saw that in Joe Colombo I'm talking about all mob guys um, and I saw that in, in Carmine Persico who was my boss yeah, yeah. and uh, they inspired me so listen street guys inspired me um, more than, you know, uh, legitimate guys. What, uh, one thing I w I'm curious about, you know, there was a culture when you were in the mob and when you were in the family doing the stuff, building this business, and then at some point, you know, you shifted and you, you walked away. How did you build culture for your family? I know you're married, four kids, like you're, you're into wine, doing a lot of speaking engagements, you know, there's a lot going on in your world. Um, how do you walk away from that culture and build a new one? And what does that look like today? Walk away from the mob culture? Yeah, because there's culture, um, there's values, right? There's a particular set of values. And then you walked away from those, those and you, you, you're building a new life or you've built a new life. I'm just kind of curious what that experience was like. Well, you know, I think it's, you got to go back to who I am personally, you know, I told you that there was guys waiting 20 years to become a member of that life. That wasn't me. When I grew up, uh, I was going to be a doctor. My mom and dad wanted me to go to medical school. This was their dream for me. I was a pre-med student at Hofstra University when my dad went, to, uh, went into prison for 50 years. Mm -hmm. If you would have asked me at that point in time, Michael, what do you want to be in your life? It would have been one of two things. I either want to be a doctor I wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees because Mickey Mantle was my idol and I was a ball player. Yeah. I wasn't good enough, but that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and then my father gets thrown in for 50 years. And Joe Colombo has an influence on me. I started meeting a lot of my dad's friends. And now is dead. I, I sat down with my father in prison. I said to him, Dad, bank robbery? Because he was uh, convicted of masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. And I said, bank robbery? And he looked at me and he said, son, I'm innocent. I'm no bank robber. The four witnesses that testified against him were all drug addicts. From the time I was a kid, my father preached against drugs to me. He would make up stories about guys that hurt themselves with drugs. He put a healthy fear of drugs. I've never even smoked a joint. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Won't go near it. I had tragedy in my family over drugs. I, I hate it. So when he said that to me, I said, my dad would never, never deal with these guys. Never. 
So I believed him. I says, how are we going to get you out of here? 50 years, you're going to die in prison. And I lose interest in school because I started getting close to Joe Colombo. And I said, Dad, I met him in the visiting room at Leavenworth Penitentiary. I said, Dad, I'm not going to school. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. And we had an argument about it, you know, discussion back and forth. But I was a headstrong kid, and he knew my mind was made up. Yeah. So he said to me, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. And he proposed me for membership. This was not my aspiration to be a mob guy. I just wanted to help my dad. Yeah. So the reason I'm giving you the background is because when I made the trip, now, when I was in that life for 20 years, I wanted to be the best possible mob guy I could be because that's just the way I do things. So, yeah. you know, I, I excelled in that life. But um, so it wasn't, this was not my lifelong desire. So I think inwardly who I was was not the mob guy, sure. if you understand what I'm saying. And, you know, you, you probably don't know this, but I was married once before. Yeah, I was married very young to uh, a girl. We had three children. We were married for a few years. I had three kids in three years. So I have seven kids altogether. And I got six grandkids at this point. So, and family, even growing up, I mean, we were all about family. I mean, my, my father was one of 19 kids. Whoa. My grandfather, when we grew up in Brooklyn, made every one of us, we had to be with him on Sundays. All the kids, 19, all the, the grandkids, it was a circus every Sunday and every holiday. Wow. So we were all about family. So family's always been major in my life. You know, it's number one. So, um, you know, the transition out of the life wasn't that difficult because I wasn't made to be a mob guy, if you can understand that. I don't think I've ever explained this like this before. It was a first. So, no, I'm serious. But um, so the transition... Even though I still have the mob mentality, if you talk to my wife and my kids, they think I'm a dinosaur yeah. because it's all about respect and it's all about, and they said, Dad, we don't do that anymore. I said, no, we still do that in this house. This is the way I grew up and this is the way, because it's the right way, yeah. you know? So I still have the mob mentality that I, I can't shake that yeah. because it's embedded in me. What do you think, um, looking back at your life, what was the biggest high and what was the biggest low? Oh, the biggest low, I'll go first, was without a doubt uh, the first night that when I was violated and they threw me back in the hole. Um, that first night was the worst night of my life, no doubt. Because it was the first time in my life that I felt I had no control over myself or my future. I felt I was going to lose everything, wife, kids, freedom, everything that was dear to me. And I didn't have the answers. I said, I'm done. It's over. I'm finished. It was a very bad night. I'll tell you how bad it was, Daniel. I used to demean people that were suicidal. I said, they're weak. How do you not face up to your troubles? You're weak. I don't do that anymore. Because that night, I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't that brave. But I really wanted to close my eyes and not wake up. Because I couldn't. It was too torturous to think about my future being in solitary confinement for the rest of my life. Because that's what they said. They said, you're never getting out of the hole. Because I still, people wanted to kill me. And the government's still upset with me because I wouldn't cooperate. They were going to put another racketeering case on me. They violated my parole. I said, I'm done. Yeah. It's over. How'd you survive? Like, how, how do you go from your lowest moment to, you know, I'm okay, I can move forward? Well, I didn't do it alone. It was, that's when God interceded in my life. Daniel. That's when a prison guard came by and pushed a Bible through the slot on the door. And without getting dramatic, because I've said this a thousand times in my uh, testimony, that was a life-changing, it was a defining moment in my life. I said, we have defining moments. When I picked up the Bible and started to read it and spent the next 29 months and seven days in solitary, six by eight cell, 24-7, was me and God. And I'm going to tell you this, that's not easy. I don't care what anybody tells you. We weren't meant to be solo creatures. We were meant to be social. And I was tried and tested in every single way throughout that time. I had some very bad nights, very bad days. And you know, a lot of guys don't do well in that. I mean, those lights went out. You heard a lot of moaning and groaning. And I saw some horrible stuff, you know, during that time that I, I don't even want to think about. But guys 
cutting their wrists and, you know, just couldn't handle it. And I get it. I'm not knocking them. I get it. I 100% get it. Um, it was the most trying. I think if you get through that, other than, you know, God forbid, the loss of a child, uh, you can get through anything. And that's how I feel. There's nothing that, that could be much worse than that, like I said, unless, you know, God forbid, a loss of a child. But, um, and I got through it. And I'm much better for it, I think. <laughs> Depends who you ask me. My wife sometimes says, you know, yeah, I don't understand how you think. I said, well, it's me. It's who I am. Yeah. In business, what's been your high point? You know, um, I have found this out, Daniel, and I don't want to get, you know, sugary on this, but I've really learned in my life, it is so much more rewarding and better to give than it is to receive. I became a speaker by default. This was never a plan. I had no idea, nothing. I became kind of a mentor of people by default. There wasn't a plan. But to get the feedback that I've gotten over the past 25 years from people that have been encouraged and inspired by what I have to offer has been the high for me. Better than making, you know, all the money that I made and, and the lifestyle that I had. It's been, it's what keeps me going. It's impacting been, lives. Impacting lives in a positive way. Yeah, let's wrap up with what you're up to today. I know you've got a huge following on YouTube. You just finished a book um, that's been really successful, actually. All the reviews are really good. Um, I drank some of your wine last night, so I love that. Um, uh, what, what are you excited about in, in your future as we wrap up? Well, I have to tell you, I'm very excited about, you know, Franzese Wines. I mean, I'm excited about the relationship with the... Well, here, here's the thing, too. Something I didn't know. My partner, Sam... She's 22, 23 years old, amazing. He reminds me a lot of me when I was his age. Yeah. Very aggressive, on top of everything. You really wanted to succeed. And um, what I didn't know about him when he came to me about the wine, what he shared with me at that time is that he was following me since he was 10 years old. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that initially. So I inspired him to a point. And now we're doing wine together. And I just love the whole concept, you know, the wine is from Armenia. Yep. It's a great story because when Noah's Ark, and this is documented, it's, it's been written about, it's the truth, I've, we've researched it. When Noah's Ark landed and the uh, flood subsided, it was at the foot of Mount Ararat that the first vineyards were grown. So right. Armenia is the birthplace of the new civilization. Well, Michael, thanks for joining us today. This has been super fun. I had no idea how close mob and business was. And so this has just been one of the coolest conversations I've ever had. Well, I appreciate that, Dan. Thanks very much. Okay. Daniel Ramsey here. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Michael and how the mob and business is very similar. It was really interesting. If you like this interview and you'd like more just like this, hit the button below to subscribe to our podcast for more interviews of how to grow and scale your business.